Well, congregation, God's word calls our attention this evening from Jeremiah chapter 31 and Matthew chapter 2. The story of Herod's rage against Bethlehem. We pick up the story beginning in, in Jeremiah, the prophecy that is foretold in Jeremiah 31, beginning there at verse 15. Our focus tonight is on Rachel and Rachel's weeping after the Christmas event of Christ's birth. Hear these words tonight from Jeremiah 31, verse 15. Thus says the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, refrain refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope in your future, says the Lord, that your children shall come back to their own border. Thus far from that place, we pick up our reading in Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophets, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. And these are the words of our text. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. Thus far from God's holy word. Shall we ask his blessing this evening? Heavenly Father, we come before you again asking that you would teach us to weep. And to weep aright, not the tears of Rachel, but the tears of faith. Father, we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. The congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you were to write a song for Rachel, what lyrics would you write? We have in our, our Trinity Psalter hymnals, we have all of these songs of the Old Testament saints in their great expectation, their joy for this Christmas morning when this child would come. We have the song of of Zechariah, Blessed be God, the Lord of Israel, for he has set us free. He has raised a horn of salvation from David's seed. We have the song of, of Simeon who was in the temple in his old age and he himself was able to hold this child in his arms. And he says, now my peace is serene, for my eyes have seen 
your wonderful salvation. The song of Mary, the mother of our Lord, my soul doth magnify the Lord and my spirit greatly rejoice in the God of my salvation because he has considered my humble estate. Songs of joy, of comfort, of peace. But what of Rachel? What is the song of Rachel? The horrible thing that we read in in Matthew chapter 2, some two years after these wise men went on their Christmas journey to meet this Christ, now we see that Herod in a rage is now mandating that every child two years and younger fits the description of who this Christ, who, who is declared to be the king, is. It fits that description. And so with a, a snap of his fingers, he, he sends all of his soldiers into Bethlehem and he, he begins to rip children out of mother's arms and parents' eyes are filled with tears as they watch as the babes of Bethlehem are, are rounded up and slaughtered in a, a trail of blood. And Matthew sees in this night, he sees weeping, the weeping of Bethlehem's mothers. And yet out of all of the mothers who had the right to weep, there is one voice that is weeping. It's the echo of Rachel's song. A voice was heard in Ramah, Lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Rachel's song is the loud wailing of comfortless tears. A future that has been shattered. Hopes and dreams that are crushed. Her experience with this newborn Christ is not the joy and the comfort of the others, but grief and sadness. But Matthew sees in this tragedy in Bethlehem the fulfillment of Rachel's tears. An odd prophecy to be fulfilled for sure, but no less a sorrow that is fulfilled. And it ought to make us ask, why is Rachel here in Bethlehem? And why is she weeping? In order to understand that tragedy of Bethlehem, we need to trace the source Back to the source of Rachel's tears, which is the first thing that we see this evening. It's the source of Rachel's tears. Three times throughout the Old Testament and once in the New Testament, we hear of Rachel's weeping. Beginning back in Genesis. Back in Genesis, we hear before that she was a weeping mother, she was a weeping wife. You remember that story of Jacob leaving his father in his mother's house. He goes to his mother's homeland And he goes to the very well in which his father met his mother, Rebecca, and he sees Rachel. And he is beheld by by her beauty, and so he asks Laban for her hand in marriage. And Laban says, what will the bride price be? And so he he suggests that they they work for seven years, and Jacob labors for seven years for, for Laban. And you remember the story that after his seven years of labor, Now comes the time for the wedding feast. Now comes the time for the feast after the wedding. And he goes to his tent, and then he sleeps. And in the morning, behold, it's Leah and not Rachel. And so he goes to confront Laban that he he was deceitful and that he deceived him. And what does Laban say? He says to him that you may be able to deceive your older brother out of his birthright, but you will not be able to take my daughter's 
birthright by marrying the younger first. And so he arranges again and he works another seven years. But all 14 years for the same woman, for Rachel, because he did not love Leah. And he was willing to work no matter the price. And the Bible says that it felt that it was but a day of labor for him because he loved Rachel. And so began an unholy competition in Jacob's tent between two sisters. And you remember that God loved Leah. Even though Jacob loved Rachel, God showed compassion to Leah. He heard her cries in her distress over the contempt of her husband and her sister. And the Lord made her fruitful, and and she bore many sons early in their marriage. Four sons. There was Reuben, now my husband will love me. There was Simeon, now the Lord has heard me. There was Levi, now my husband will be attached to me. And Judah, now I will praise the Lord. But Rachel remained barren, embarrassed, and envious of her sister. In Genesis 30, it records that she she comes storming into Jacob's tent where she confronts her husband and she says, Give me children or I die. And Jacob says to her, Am I the Lord that I have withheld children from you? The Lord has favored Leah. Though outwardly she was beautiful, though outwardly Jacob loved her more than Leah, the Lord had favored her. And so Rachel conceives of a new plan. She decides that she will give him her servant, Bilhah, by which she will conceive two sons, Dan and Naphtali. And Naphtali, whose whose name means by great wrestling with my sister, I have come out victorious. She continues to think of herself in a struggle against her sister. But the Lord favored Leah, and she bore and conceived two sons of her own, Issachar and Zebulun. And the Lord continued to favor Leah over Rachel, and Rachel continued to weep. But then the Lord took pity on her, and she bore a son of her own, Joseph, whose name means, now the Lord will add to me another son. She's already thinking of the future of of gaining more sons in this continued contest between her sister. But now even this holy, unholy competition would increase When Jacob himself is changed, he's no longer Jacob, but now he receives the promise and his name is changed to Israel. The promise that was given to his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham is now his, that a nation and nations would come from him, that kings would come from him and a king would come from him, that a land would be his possession. This is a a promise of the Christ, a promise of the coming Messiah. And it's a promise given just in time for Rachel to be pregnant again with her second son. And as the time comes, Jacob must leave his uncle Laban's house and pitch his tent in the land of Canaan, the land of promise. And certainly Rachel thinks that her designs are beginning to materialize in the land of promise, being pregnant again with her second son, But then tragedy again strikes Rachel. We read in Genesis 35 that a few miles short of a town called Ephrah, which would later be renamed Bethlehem, 
A few miles short, she began to have hard labor. And Jacob, having to set a tent, pitches his tent a few miles short of Bethlehem, where the Bible says she fell into hard labor. And when it was at her, her hardest, her soul was departing, for she was dying. And her nurse came to her and, and was, was carrying this newborn child, saying, Take courage, you have, you have given birth to another son. Be comforted. But Rachel refused to be comforted. Her parting words in Scripture are, Ben-Oni, son of my sorrow, son of my grief, son of my despair. And she died. And as one Reformed minister put it, not with the smile of faith, but the tears of a disillusioned life. And even this name, Ben-Oni, Jacob strips away. He will not let his image of Rachel be cemented with her tears. But he changes the boy's name to Benjamin. Benjamin, the son of my right hand. And he will become Israel's most beloved child. But though Rachel died, she never stopped weeping, did she? We hear her again. Rachel, her tears grow stronger, for we hear again in Jeremiah 31, now as hundreds of years later, as the Israelites are being brought into exile, we hear her uh, again weeping over her children. Jeremiah, the, the weeping prophet, takes her as his very image to describe this horrific event. And what better image could he use than Israel's weeping mother? And so it's, as it were, she, she raises from the grave as she sees her sons being shackled. And she cries, my children, my children are no more. My children are no more. And she refuses to be comforted. As she watches as her children are swept away into judgment, Rachel weeps again in Ramah. But where is Ramah? Ramah is... A border town, it's a town between the northern kingdoms and the southern kingdoms. It was the place that, uh, that was a few miles from Bethlehem. It was Benjamin's inheritance. It was her piece of the promised land through her sons being taken away from her and her children. Ramah was the place that, that Hannah prayed to God and her prayers were answered and she was given a son, Samuel, who would be Israel's first judge. Ramah was the place where the Israelites asked Samuel for their first king, Saul, and he was anointed at Ramah. Ramah was Benjamin's. And now it's being used, according to Jeremiah 40, as a deportation zone. It was the first place, the first stop the exiles made where chains and shackles would be placed upon their necks and they would be made to take their own trail of tears. And Jeremiah sees Rachel, as it were, being forced to watch her children carried away from her again, weeping and wailing with loud lamentation. There's a sense of vanity in her voice that all she has accomplished in bearing children is sorrow disappointment and pain not only was she unable to make it to the promised land now her children are being taken out of it 
And she weeps and weeps and weeps. And you feel the sense of frustration of generations and generations and generations of disappointment, of failure again and again. But then comes Christmas. The joy of Israel, the consolation of Israel has appeared. Israel's comfort has been fulfilled in Christ. The joy of Israel's promise. But not for Rachel. With the promise comes Herod, the Edomite, the descendant of Esau, who rages again, as it were, against Jacob's descendants, Jacob's children. And he sweeps away all of Rachel's children. And then we read that her sorrow reaches its climax in Matthew 2. Comfort has come, but not for Rachel. She continues to weep. But this time her weeping is, is filled up. Matthew says it has come to fulfillment with the birth of Christ, for she lifts up her voice one final time to cry out. And Matthew writes, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice heard in Ramah, lamentation weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Her tears have filled to the brim in her eyes. But what kind of tears does she cry? What kind of tears run down Rachel's face? What is the sorrow that refuses comfort? The second thing we see here this evening, the sorrow in Rachel's tears. As the soldiers of Herod carry out this destruction against Bethlehem and against Bethlehem's babies, Matthew hears the voice of Rachel echoing in the streets of Bethlehem all the way from Ramah, But what is the significance of her tears? Certainly Herod, his destruction was not even close to the exile of the Israelites. These were dangerous times and Herod was a ruthless and bloody man. He was remembered in history as the one who slaughtered his own family. As the one who would kill prominent citizens of Israel so that he would have something to mourn over. Herod was a tyrant. But this wasn't a a nationwide edict. This was one small village in all of its districts in Bethlehem. But Matthew sees it as the fulfillment of all of Jeremiah's prophecy and of all of Israel's tears because of the person that Herod was seeking to kill. He limited his rage. He limited the scope of his wrath against the Christ child. And in that destruction... We hear Rachel weep again. She weeps not only a mother's tears for her children, certainly tears, of course, for her children, but it is far, far more than those tears. Because every mother in Israel knew that the promise would come to the woman, to the seed of the woman, who would crush the head of the serpent. And therefore, childbearing in the Old Testament was not only to fill up happy homes, but it was connected to the promise. It was the very power of the promise by which God would use this as the mode he would bring the Christ, by which he would bring the Messiah. Which is why Eve rejoiced at the birth of Seth after the destruction of Abel. Which is why Sarah laughed in the birth of Isaac, even in her old age. Why, why Leah could rejoice and why Mary pondered in her heart all that the angel had told her. Because childbearing was connected to the promise. 
even often in spite of Israel's mothers. And when Christ was born, when the Messiah comes, all of Israel's mothers could rejoice. They were all blessed because their God-ordained task, since the promise was given, was fulfilled in this one child. And therefore, all of Israel's mothers could rejoice, except for Rachel, because she viewed childbearing in service to her own personal glory, not in service to the promise, but to win victory over her sister rather than to God. She, she turned her calling as Israel's mother into her own fleshly ambition. And in that way, she is the embodiment. She is the symbol of all of fleshly Israel seeking its own glory rather than its calling to serve God. As her descendants did all throughout the Old Testament. The sorrow in Rachel's tears is the refusal to detach herself from personal gain and glory and service. To the promise. It's a fleshly sorrow. To be sure she weeps over the babies of Bethlehem, but don't you see that what wells deep within her from a far deeper place is a sorrow for herself? And how do we know that? Because she refuses to be comforted. She refuses, in light of the consolation of Israel, to, to dry her tears. He refuses the consolation of Israel. What does Jeremiah say? He says, keep your voice from weeping and dry your eyes from tears. But she continues to weep. Because what would it mean for her to accept the comfort of Israel other than to, to deny herself as the beloved wife of Jacob in service to the child of Leah? in service which would require humility. And as a picture of Israel, that's what her tears represent for all of fleshly Israel at the coming of Christ, because with his birth, he flips everything on its head, not the flesh, but the spirit, not pride, but the promise, not the will of man, but the will of God, not my kingdom come, but God's kingdom come. The birth of our Lord is that magnetic moment in history where, where we're either attracted to him or repelled farther away from him. The, the Christmas promise either humbles our heart or it hardens our heart. Because at Christmas, the ambitions of the flesh are crucified in service to the Christ. You know the tears of Rachel. Have you ever wept? Rachel's tears, because they are the same tears that well up within us when our flesh is confronted by the Christ of Christmas. And as we approach that, that Christmas day, we are reminded again that my ambition, my will, my flesh must be subverted in view of the promise that has come and been fulfilled in Christ. For he is the king that Israel longed for and waited for. John says that the true light of Israel came to the world, but his, his own people refused him. They didn't want to know him. They didn't know him because they loved their darkness. This is the condemnation. Men love darkness rather than light. 
And Christmas is the great reversal. The proud are humbled and the humbled are exalted. And when God confronts us with this child of Christmas, He confronts our flesh. Will we serve Him or will we serve ourselves? Will we rejoice in the promise or will we cry over what He calls us to give up? That's the crisis that Christmas presents. And furthermore, Will we be comforted with the promise of Christmas? The tears of Rachel were so consumed with the tragedy of her life, the failure of her motherhood, the jealousy she had over her sister, that she missed the joy of the Christmas promise in this newborn king. Her sorrow over herself clouded her vision until she could not see the beauty of the promise. The song of Rachel is weeping of self-pity in light of gospel fulfillment. And those are tears that she refuses to let the gospel comfort. Both Matthew and Jeremiah picture Rachel as the mother of Israel who weeps that her children are no more. Her children are no more. But is that true? Are her children really no more as a mother of Israel? The answer, of course, is both yes and no. Benjamin would never again be the king, would produce a king over Israel. And as Matthew writes, the genealogy of the tribe of of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ, would receive a throne that would endure forever. And, And Benjamin would have no place as that king, but only Judah. And in him, the consolation of Israel would come. See, that's the solace for Rachel's tears. There is hope for her future and for her children that they will come back to the land and they will be comforted. She will receive, as Jeremiah says, a reward for her labor. And that's what we see here finally this evening. When Matthew quotes from Jeremiah, he's not merely highlighting Rachel's weeping, but the grander context of Jeremiah 31, which takes away the hopelessness of her tears. Jeremiah 31 is the grand uh, promise of the Old Testament of the new covenant that God will make with his people. A, A new covenant in which he would write the law upon their own hearts. And he would wipe away the tears of his people. And if you still have your Bibles open, I'd encourage you to look at that beginning at verse 24 with me where Jeremiah says, And, and there shall dwell in Judah itself and all of its cities together, farmers and those going out with flocks, For I have satiated the weary soul, and I have replenished every sorrowful soul. God is saying that he will prosper Judah, and he will make the tribe of Judah a source of blessing for all of Israel. And his new covenant will be made and secured through the tribe of Judah. And then look at verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sins I will remember no more. The drying of tears would be found in the forgiveness of sins. What flesh could not do, 
God has accomplished through his promise. And where is Jesus through this slaughter of Bethlehem? He's in Egypt. So that it could be fulfilled what the prophet had spoken out of Egypt, I have called my son. Rachel weeps as if her children are no more, but but truly there is a child that lives. She weeps as if to say, I am ruined, that all hope is lost. My future is gone. But Matthew says everything's going according to plan. God's purposes are, are right on track. The hope of Israel has come. Israel's child, the new Israel, is safe. Herod can't destroy the promise. He might plot and scheme against the Christ, against his church, but he will be thwarted again and again. And in fact, that's what we read all throughout the Bible, isn't it? The promise at war with the seed of the serpent. And now with the birth of Christ, victory is made certain for God and for his people. And and we see a wonderful picture of this great battle between the serpent and the, the, the promised seed of the woman in Revelation chapter 12. Uh, if you would turn there as well for a moment, we see the ongoing battle between these two in which would result in victory with the, uh, with the coming of Christ. We, we see a heavenly viewpoint of the Christmas story, Christmas on a grander stage of redemption. In Revelation 12 it says in verse 1, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. That is the church. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. That is the devil, Satan described as this world power with his dominion and his kingdom. Verse 4, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth, to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. And John would go on to say that the devil, having missed his intended target, continues to wage war against his church, knowing that his time is short. But God has, has saved and rescued the child, caught up to heaven on the very throne of God where he rules the nations with a rod of iron. Though Herod schemes against Christ, though he thrashes his tail, as it were, against the babies of Bethlehem, ready to devour the children of Rachel, ready to destroy the church, the promise remains secure. Which means that the tears of his people will be dried and wiped away. For this is the child that will bring in the new heavens and the new earth where there will be no more tears. From everlasting to everlasting will his kingdom be. And so as we continue on into 2021 with life after Christmas, we don't go into 2021 without hope. The Christmas message is to rejoice in the newborn king, this child lying in a manger, because he is the Prince of Peace, who as the Son of God brings his everlasting kingdom to earth, and the consummation of his kingdom will be the wiping away of all of our tears. 
Because you see tears continue to fall after Christmas. The parents of Bethlehem weeped at the birth of Christ. And tears will continue to fill our eyes as well. But the consolation is, it's not outside of God's plan of redemption. Even as we recognize the kind of year it's been, the difficulties and the challenges that we face, the the changing world we live in, even the individually challenging and difficult aspects of our own lives, there's been loss, there's been heartache, there have been things and there will be things that, that cloud our eyes with tears. But the warning tonight is that we need to be careful not to weep like Rachel, weeping as without hope, refusing the comfort of Christ's birth. Because after the birth of Christ, Rachel could no longer weep without hope. After the birth of Christ, the Israelites could no longer weep without hope. And after the birth of Christ, we too can no longer weep as Rachel weeps. We can only weep with the tears of faith. The weeping that is also comforted by the gospel. And longs and yearns for that final advent. That final coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to dry our tears forever. And so congregation, as we... Ready ourselves for Christmas. What song will you sing on Christmas? Will it be the Old Testament song of the saints, the consolation of Israel? Will it be the continued song of despair, of hopelessness? Do we weep for our flesh? And are we refusing comfort without hope? Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. There is hope for your future, says the Lord. The child from Bethlehem has not been crushed. He has been caught up to heaven on his throne. Rejoice. Your sins are forgiven. Your warfare ended. And he has come to exchange our our song of sadness with the angelic song of glory. So we need to rest in this comfort. We need to to rejoice in this comfort. And even to sing of this comfort all of the days that God has given for us. Amen.